Exclusive Books Homebrew is a celebration of the diversity that is local writing, covering fresh perspectives on history, sharing never-told-before personal stories, challenging established views, and excavating the trough of political policy. Exclusive Books Homebrew. Not the same old story. Today's episode of Homebrew is presented by author, journalist, and fearsome cruciverbalist, Jonathan Anser. Welcome to the Homebrew podcast series. The pressure on today's guest is enormous because that's what happens when the title of your book is, but he speaks so well. But if Ivan Johnson speaks just half as well as he writes, then he's got nothing to worry about. With a light touch and turns of phrase that sparkle and bounce off the page, Ivan has written a gritty memoir about his rite of passage from a boy in Cape Town's Belgravia estate to an ad man in the former homeland of Bupututswana. In between, there's mean Mr. Moch being chased off whites-only beaches, riots against the apartheid government, baseball, the Smiths, surfing, love and death, a rock and rollicking journey through Europe, and kidnapping Garfield. Ivan's identity memoir is light and humorous, but it's also filled with some painful moments. Above all, it contains poignant insights as Ivan, Ivy, Aster, Ives grapples with his identity and what it means to be colored. Hello, Ivan. Can you please read us an extract from But He Speaks So Well? I tried looking around, but it was hard to do. The steps were high, but not very deep. The Boer was a step above and the old Swana woman a step below. My toes nudged the step ahead and my heels teetered on the edge. We were unbearably close. My nose brushed the stinky belt as I turned to search for any others like me. There was a colored community in Bop, but they lived segregated in a suburb called Danville on the dorp limits of Mabatu. I played a bit of club football with them sometimes, but it had taken them a while to warm to me. Early on, a senior player came up to me and asked me where I was from. Proud of my Cape Town football heritage, I enthusiastically told them, too much laughter. That was when I realized that being colored in Mabatu was different to being colored in Cape Town. The language was different, the accent was different, and the way we acknowledged each other was different. I sensed then that I was not ever going to be one of them. I might as well have been white. I gave up and referred to my fellow colored brethren as the Danville people from then on. I recognized one or two of the Danville players at the voting station. They didn't acknowledge me. Desperate for camaraderie, I looked for my work colleagues. Jembo and Les were expat Kiptonians, and they were the ones who had convinced me to join them in advertising's backwater in Bop. They were organized and early adopters, so would have voted on the first day. This was day three. I was alone, identified with no group. Inside the hall, I looked down at the aging floorboards, then at my boots, black leather boots that went up to my knees. A riding crop peeked out of the side of the right boot. My beige jumpers hugged my legs like moss on a tree. My sweat-soaked white cotton shirt was lightly concealed by a heavy tweed jacket. A suede-covered riding hat rested under my left arm. My left hand dangled limply, holding two white gloves. 
The right hand was the only appendage briefly relieved of ridiculous pageantry and free to raise itself and rest against my forehead. Fatigued by the stifling heat, my brain reacted slowly. The thoughts came from way back in the head and with a dull thump bounced back off the conscientious palm. What and who the fuck are you, Ivan? I cannot recount exactly the procedures within the hall. The line shuffled half a step forward. The old lady behind me shuffled a full stride forward. As my face pressed into the sweat-soiled shirt of the Boer in front of me, I griped silently. They had better learn the etiquette of queuing. The Boer merely grunted, but his bitter wife ahead of him hissed. Fork. Elvil stem. I shook my head as much as the space allowed. Racists, I tut-tutted to myself. The old lady behind mumbled into my back, which I was later told translated loosely as, Your time is over, white man. Just then an IEC official stepped into frame. He raised his hand, the dark skin towards him, and the white of his palms in the white face of the bitter wife. He smiled apologetically before looking to a group sitting on plastic chairs against the walls. They were mostly the elderly and frail. They got up slowly. Some could hardly walk. Some could hardly see. The slowest could hardly walk or see. They were ushered to the front of the queue. The bitter wife huffed. Her husband puffed. I sighed with relief. I had a little respite. A little time to reconsider. Consensus had to be reached. Who I was going to vote for seemed less important than the more important question of who was going to vote. Ivan, Ivy, Aster or Ives? <laughs> well, you do speak so well. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, John. <laughs> when you started writing... The book was titled Jenga Man. Can you tell us why Jenga? Yeah, well, it's quite a, quite a while back, but it was called Jenga because as I was researching the contents of the book and what was going on, the more I was finding out and the more I was writing, the more I was beginning to see sort of um, uh, feel familiar traits and see recurrences of certain things, sometimes little things. You know, when I went to my past as a child, like when I built little houses, you know, when you play car car and things like that. And I saw the, the house I was living at the time was almost an exact full-scale replica of that little game I used to play under a big tree. The pool was in the right place. The car was very similar to the car I was driving there. And lots of little things I started seeing recurring all the time. Sometimes a little thing, sometimes a big thing, something just a habitual, some things you just do every day in your life, which you do quite often in different circumstances perhaps. But I saw this recurrence of things. And I started seeing life a little bit differently where before I always considered myself to be in charge of my life, you know, both failures and successes. You know, it's all just me. It's just Ivan. That's what he does. And I saw this thing that you're actually not kind of that isolated. Lots of things around us influence what we do and what we will do in life. And it became more touching as I was going through doing research on my dad and his family. I went to an old aunt and lots of recurrences there, like, um, uh, you know, my 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 dad's mom always used to wear a flower in her hair. She was very beautiful. My then wife was very beautiful, always wore a flower in her hair, things like that. So there's different sort of things that happen all of life. Then I started, I settled on the name Jenga Man because based on the game Jenga, the you know, the West African game, where, you know, you, you first, before you start playing, you've got to build a tower, 
yeah, before he stopped playing. So that I considered my tower. I was at that point in my life where I thought I knew who I was. So now I'm ready to play me, the game, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that could happen for, for, for different people, could happen at different times in life. But that was a moment for me. I thought I'm complete enough to now really consider who I am and play my game correctly. And with, with that game, Jenga, you've you got to start moving blocks, right, to progress in the game. And the first blocks to move, the really, really easy blocks to move, which you have to start playing, those to me were kind of like the things in life that that are everyday things that you do. You don't even mean to, it's just habitual, it's habits, you do it every day, good or bad, that's what you are, and you can't really change those things much. And the second level of play is the more difficult blocks, yeah? You know, um, you've got to squeeze out, you know, shuffle it out softly and gently and carefully, but you have to play those blocks to get ahead in the game, yeah. right? And those are the more difficult things you, you come across in your life, like, okay, this is a tough one. I've got to deal with this maybe better. I've got to do it like this. I can't make the same mistakes. And then you get to the last layer, which are the very, very hard blocks, the ones right at the bottom that are stuck over there. And maybe those are best left untouched, <laughs> yeah? Because that could bring the whole tower. Down, yeah. toppling down yeah. and um i reached that point when i started when i was writing and um because the book became very sort of um philosophical and quite labored in his writing because of that and i was struggling to write and i was going through a very tough stage of my life personally i could see separation with uh, my loved ones happening and it was in that week when i listened to my aunt and she spoke about my dad because he was an orphan and didn't know his mom or dad, you know, but he always spoke about um, when he was six, seven years old at school, there was, was a woman that came to the fence during lunch breaks and she'd chat to him and give him a sweet and a beautiful smile and turn and walk away with a tear in her eye. And only when he was like 17 years old did he find out that was his real mom. Oh, wow. And this was the woman with the, with the, the flower in her hair. Oh, right. This beautiful woman, like my then wife, beautiful woman with a flower in her hair. And going through separation at that time, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is that thing, that, that, that block that topples everything again. You know, and I actually stopped writing to stop things happening. I didn't want to be looking through a fence at my child for the rest of my life, you know. I thought if I stopped writing, I could stop that happening. Yeah. But I didn't. <laughs> but you couldn't stop writing, and I'm glad that you couldn't because you've produced a really remarkable book. But what is it like to put yourself out there and share personal details about your life? Where did you find the courage to do that? I, I found it quite relatively easy because the book only goes as far as 94 when I was 27. So... At ease, still quite, there's an innocence there. It really is Ivan looking out at the world. You know, it's not too philosophical and giving my deeper, deepest inner feelings. It's just kind of what I uh, remember and the memories that I have, the way I saw the world. So there's no big judgments really or anything. So it, it was easier. It wasn't a, a very deep and searching. And I didn't actually have to, I can lay out my whole life and the, my feelings as such. You know, I think people will maybe be able to, when they read it, um, make their own assumptions about how I felt. So I think that's part of, of, of writing. You have an amazing ability to recall these details, the descriptions of what people looked like and what they wore and their hairstyles. What was the process like of remembering and tapping into memories from decades ago? Um, I am a visual person. Right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a creative and I'm actually, uh, qualified, well graduated as a graphic designer. So I, I, I look at things a lot. You know, I, I really study things. I take it in and, you know, ways to kind of put them in the bank 
at the back of my head so I can store them for whenever I need them as insights. So I've always been very good at that. And, you know, he's kind of my job. But the amazing process, I mean, I did doubt that I could actually write in detail, but the moment you put pen to paper or put your fingers on the keyboard, I guess things just come back. The vivid and it just flows, it flows through your fingers, you know. <laughs> it's, it's a strange and it's a great, that's the most satisfying thing just to paint that picture. Everyone can do that, but they just sit themselves down and just think about it a little bit and put it down. You'll be surprised what you come up with. And memories beget memories, I suppose. Yeah, they do. What did you learn about yourself during this process? Oh, not enough, I'm afraid. <laughs> there are still, there are still many questions and maybe some of them will never be answered, but I do know that, you know, um, Everything's kind of there. I've got to decipher it for myself too, to become a better person and to use this, this process and to use this book to actually advance myself. I think I'm a lot wiser now. And, um, you know, when I see it in this nice condensed version of my life, it does help me kind of figure things out. Like, okay, maybe I've got to start moving those blocks better. <laughs> so to speak. The subtitle is Memoir of a South African Identity Crisis. And you write about your own identity, whether it's Ivan, Ivy, Aster, or Ives. Where, where are you now? Which one are you? Are you all of them? <laughs> I think I'm still all of them in a way. Um, I do channel one more than the others sometimes, but I'd, I'd like to see myself more as, as Ivan. I, I, I think the whole thing about identity is maybe we... Maybe it's, it's not that clear in the book, but we should not be identified by color alone. And um, I'm Ivan, yeah? And um, I shouldn't be known as Ivan, Ivy, Ace, or Ives. I'm Ivan. And yes, I have lots of different traits and different personalities, and I can speak differently to different people, but essentially I'm Ivan. And we should not be identified by our color alone. I promise you there are people, you know, from Belgravia's state, who are way smarter than I am, um, but have had less less breaks. You know, they haven't had the same opportunities because they speak slightly different, they look slightly different too, but with abundance of talent. But, you know, sometimes they are unfairly treated and people choose and what you look like or what you sound like. And do you ever slip into your Spanish persona? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Um, um, I can still remember a bit of the language, which I'm not going to do now. But yeah, that, that really was a fun period of my life. It was ridiculous, but it was fun. There are loads of one-liners that really made me laugh out loud. You go to a boring club and you write that it should be called the moon bar because it has no atmosphere. <laughs> the young revolutionaries you call young, dumb, and full of we shall overcome. There's a, you have a liaison with, I'm not even sure how to pronounce her name, Mignonette. Yes. Nicknamed Mnet, and you write that Mnet Open Time was a treat. I had carte blanche to do the things <laughs> I'd never done before. It seems like you had a lot of fun writing the, the book. Was it fun? Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. You know, I didn't want it just to be um, a diary of someone's life and sequential, and then this happened and this happened. I think if you write a book, I felt obligated to at least you know, give it a good go and, and, and write something original and something that entertains and something that flows and something that has turns of phrases that, that really work. Because once I stopped writing and I read Morrissey, you know, my idol, his yeah. <laughs> biography, and I stopped writing, I thought, like, oh my goodness, this is the way to write. Because every word was so carefully chosen and crafted, every sentence. I mean, his first paragraph break, I think, was on page 54. 
or something ridiculous. So the amount of love he puts into every line, you know, I feel like I'll go back. I can't do that, but I've got to put more effort into it, yeah, because the writing itself, not just the stories, the writing itself has to have some substance and entertainment value. You write that you were the first person in the world to do the difficult and definitive breakdance move, the windmill. So can you still do it, and can you describe what it is? I was very, very tempted to try it two <laughs> nights ago. Luckily, the floor space wasn't big enough, but I was playing the Beastie Boys, and I nearly broke out into a breakdance. Thankfully, I didn't. The last time I did was probably about 10 years ago at um, my agency, my old agency, and I did it in reception after one bar evening, and I knocked my knee against the reception desk and couldn't play football <laughs> the next day. But as far as the first person to do the windmill, in South Africa, I'm sticking with that because back then we didn't have the internet and not everything was recorded on our phones. So I witnessed myself doing it for the first time. So as far as I'm concerned, I was the first one to do it in the country. <laughs> no one can prove otherwise. You are very involved in the advertising world. And I just wondered if you were given a job to make a 90 second ad for But He Speaks So Well, what would you come up with? That is a very tough question. Advertising people are renowned for not knowing how to, how to brand or sell themselves. You can ask any agency, get any agency website and you'll see how terrible it is. We are very bad at doing our own stuff because I think we're over anxious <laughs> <laughs> and we, we, we scared for really being exposed as the charlatans we often are. So I have no idea. Believe me, I had so many ideas, you know, before I had the book published, I'm going to do this. I'm going to advertise like this. I'm going to do this. And I've done none of it. The book ends in 1994 when you're 27 years old. Are you working on a sequel? I am not working on a sequel. Um, I might, but I'll change the format. I don't know if it'll be a memoir. Because 27, that was exactly halfway through my life. I'm 54 now. So it's another 27 years since then. But in the context of the book, But He Speaks So Well, is from birth until I first voted. And for me, there was a good story, a narrative, a certain narrative that had to be told. You know, it starts in 94, ends in 94, going full circle, explaining, and it's about identity. So I'm not sure what the next 27 years will hold. It's not about identity anymore. And you must remember that those first 27 years, they were kind of hard. I mean, that was during apartheid, yes, and leading up to elections. And like, you know, it was apartheid, but we still carried on. We consider ourselves we had a good upbringing and a good, comfortable life compared to most. But apartheid was around it. But it was my innocence that came through watching these things happen. But now that innocence is gone. So the next 27 years, firstly, it will be mostly about advertising which is, uh, I don't think anyone wants to read about advertising. Again, there's enough books about that. But it's also about next 27 years in this country, and lots of it, the majority of it, tainted by corruption. So I spent half my life in apartheid, and the next half of my life in these troubled times, you know, that's all about corruption. And I'm afraid that the book will become very sort of cynical and bitter, perhaps. So if I do write, I'll have to find another narrative um, to use his experiences, but I don't think it'll be a straightforward memoir. It, will, it might be fiction. I don't know. Finally, you dedicate the book to your daughter, India Ivy. Has she read it? Um, I wish she did, but she's nine years old. Nine. Um, yeah, but um, she, she can read. Um, she has her copy. 
she got the very first copy, which I signed with a mistake. <laughs> um, but she is very excited about it, and she will read it because he's dedicated to her. And because I hope for when she when she grows up, you know, it all makes sense. I did in part write it for her, so she could so she could understand. You know, because right now she's very innocent and having a life and she doesn't see color or anything like it. But I think later in life, maybe it's something worth knowing where I come from and where my family comes from. So definitely. And finally, finally, we have a question from an exclusive books reader. The question is from Samantha Austin. How did your family and growing up in the Cape Flats reflect who you are today? Yeah, um, my family had lots to do with it. Um, I don't know if I can't recall if I actually said it in the book, but, you know, we were brought up in a certain way. My parents both spoke to each other in Afrikaans, you know, Kumbay's Afrikaans. But for some reason, always forced the kids, the three of us, to speak English, you know, um, which was quite a big deal for them. And um, it was quite strange, you know, when they're forcing us to speak English and do it properly when they themselves didn't do it so well. You know, they do things like use instead of you. <laughs> and like I said in the book, possibly, you know, the terms like, you know, lock the door open. Um, but they kind of forced us to speak English. And thanks to them, because it meant a lot, because in, in, in Belgravia's state, just in that little microcosm of community, your life could take different paths, whether you spoke English or Afrikaans, because Afrikaans is a good language. English is a good language, but you really, if you spoke English, you had more opportunities, as blunt as that. You really had more opportunities. You were seen in a brighter light, so to speak, and there was more chance of you getting jobs with the white people, you know, because Afrikaners speak, speak Afrikaans, but color speaking Afrikaans was, oh, okay, they're from there. Thank you, Ivan. But he speaks so well. It's a fast-paced read that is fun, light, and a little sad in places. It may be one man's personal journey, but Ivan's memoir is rich with profound insights and poignant reflections of who we all are and where we belong. Thanks, Ivan. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Homebrew. Do you have a question you'd like to ask our homebrew authors? Send us your question and you could win a 200 Rand exclusive books voucher if yours gets chosen. WhatsApp a voice note to 079-664-0465. That's 079-664-0465. Or email socialmedia at exclusivebooks.co.za. To find out who our upcoming authors are, just follow Exclusive Books on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. This homebrew podcast was produced by Jonathan Anser, Dan Dews, and Lerato Sebanda for Exclusive Books. Books available in-store and online at exclusivebooks.co.za. Homebrew, not the same old story.